Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Kate Meese, Executive Director of the Local Government Commission. Our regular host, Mike Hancocks, is off today. We are continuing our series of episodes leading up to the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference, which will be held in San Francisco from February 1st through 3rd. New Partners is the nation's largest smart growth and sustainability event. The program will span three days and will feature tracks focusing on a range of topics, including transportation, water, housing, and equitable development. It's going to be a great conference. You won't want to miss it, so make sure to register now at newpartners.org. Our guest today is one of our speakers at the conference. Dwayne Marsh is Vice President of Institutional and Sectoral Change at the New Race Forward, which is the union of two leading racial justice nonprofit organizations, Race Forward and Center for Social Inclusion. He also serves as the Deputy Director of Government Alliance on Race and Equity, known as GARE, a core program of the New Race Forward. So thanks for being with us, Dwayne, and let's jump right in. My pleasure. So the presidential election brought conversations about race front and center. So I'm wondering if, in your opinion, is the Trump administration fueling a resurgence of white supremacy and white nationalism, or are we just shining a light on an issue that's been hiding in plain sight? And if it's the latter, how do we bring more visibility to systemic racism for people whose race, power, privilege may have prevented them from seeing the extremity of the issue. There's a lot of conversation about this. Is it, you know, are there, is there a resurgence? Is this just shining a light? And the answer is yes, in some ways both, right? And we get stuck trying to figure out which is the more prevalent cause. It's worth determining, but it also misses the point. We need to seek out and address the systems and structures that are enabling or perpetuating these perspectives regardless of their origin. It's unacceptable to have these kinds of perspectives in community. We recognize that it's not just about personal reflections, but it's also about some structures and institutions that we've had in our country that allow and perpetuate those kinds of conversations. And so when we think about trying to take this on, we all have roles to play, right? At a personal level, we have to build and understand where we fit into existing systems for power and privilege. And that can be a potentially uncomfortable position for someone who's in a position of privilege, most frequently whites who have to acknowledge that a system that harms others can benefit them whether they choose to participate actively in perpetuating that system or not. And then for those who have been marginalized, and most frequently people of color, there can be a certain weariness of having to demonstrate proof of concept or the notion that these systems still exist and still harm people, and they will until they're corrected. So we can get into a debate about why it's coming up so much, but the, the reality is we're at a new level of discussion as a nation about these issues, and there's a chance to change the structural ways in which they're perpetuated. Thanks, Dwayne. I think that's a great point. I mean, certainly we don't want to get stuck on why this is happening. The bottom line is we need to address it and we need to address it right away at a scale that, you know, we really haven't been looking at this issue in the past. 
I'm wondering, you know, I've, I've been thinking about as there's been so much attention paid to the the Me Too movement, which is growing every day with more accusations and more women coming out saying that they've um, experienced some some level of sexual harassment or assault. And I'm wondering if you you see a parallel with the fact that, you know, women who have largely been silently dealing with varying degrees of sexual harassment as a price of our gender, now that this is a growing conversation, I think a lot of women are really shocked to see the the scale and the depth of the issue. And it seems like there are some parallels with how surprised some were, um, especially, uh, you know, people of privilege to see the level of racism in this country that, that, you know, whether it was caused by the election or not surfaced around topics of the election. So I'm wondering if you see parallels and what strategies have you seen that have worked to elevate the conversation about racism and how do we continue to raise this up as an issue that shouldn't just be the issue of people of color, similar to the fact that with sexual harassment, this shouldn't just be women's issue that they have to to bear on a day-to-day basis. People of color should not be the only ones that have to to deal with this. We all do. And how do we come become more cognizant and really better allies in this work? Well, a lot of times when we talk about the issues of institutional or structural racism, right, one of the things that we say is that when the system is broken, it's broken for everyone. And so there's no question, disproportionate impact for poor communities of color who have borne the weight of how these systems can perpetuate disparities and inequities. But the system's out of balance and ultimately as a society, we fail. And so uh, you're, you're right in this notion that we have to recognize just because you're not the person directly impacted immediately by a system that is disproportionately impacting people, there's an impact for you you need to look at. What's interesting about this this kind of work is it, part of it's training people how to see into the infrared. And by that, I mean, once a system's been working or functioning a certain way for long periods of time, we start to normalize the outcomes and the processes, and they become accepted as natural, even if we can observe that people are suffering as a consequence. And it doesn't matter in some ways, but it's racism, sexism, heterosexism, ableism, whatever the marginalization is we're talking about, we have to acknowledge that disparities that we see by these different kinds of marginalization are not natural. And we kind of have a responsibility to address those directly and without apology. And the other thing we have to keep in mind is that people exist at an intersection of these kinds of margins, right? If you're a, a young woman of color who's gender questioning, you don't have a choice to be one of those things one day and one another. You are living those experiences simultaneously and are for- facing multiple forms of stress as a consequence. And so the, the, the speed at which we've seen the, the, this come off, the lid come off of this question through the Me Too conversation is in some ways a testament both to the technology in the moment we're in, but also to, I think, a boiling point that's being reached about not being able to tolerate these systems, not you know functioning to the benefit of everyone. I think that's right. And I, I'm wondering your thoughts on how do we how do we elevate this conversation? So, you know, there's been a lot of media attention and press around, you know, Colin Kaepernick's stance and, and the taking the knee movement, Black Lives Matter. I mean, we've certainly seen some elevation in this space. Are we are we gaining the right sort of momentum here? Or are there other techniques that we need to deploy? When 
conversations are complicated or challenging or difficult, we all need tools. And so I think it's great that with the conversation has expanded to the degree that it has. I think we're challenged that on the race question, particularly, it's not a conversation we've been having as a nation for a few decades now. And so we're all trying to build up our skills on how to have those discussions. I think there are personal tools that we can build. And I think that there are professional tools we can build. I think that within institutions, there are tools that can be used. And so the work that we do at the Government Alliance really focuses in on how you change institutions and structures and work within the context of government to address those things. But I think the real responsibility is to all of us to engage in the conversation and do it in a learning approach. Try not to be, you know, to be so gripped to our positions and that we can't hear and learn and use those experiences as a way to build our abilities to have conversations that are productive. It's not a conversation that most of us are really comfortable having. And so that's what some of the work that we do as an organization is. And there are other organizations that really focus on the personal exploration that you can do, how you explore your own privilege, how you deal with, you know, your whiteness or your, how you do with your heritage as a person of color. There's lots of resources out there. But the main thing is be a part of this conversation and then recognize, you know, that solving some of these issues, these are the unresolved questions from the founding of our democracy. We never did resolve this question of race. And so it's going to be a little messy and it's going to be difficult, but it's the work we have as responsibility is contributing to our own democracy. That's great, Dwayne, and, and really timely and thinking about the holidays and the fact that people are going to be with with family and with in-laws and, you know, with people with a diverse range of opinions and perspectives. And I know that I've certainly been at many tables where the rule is not to talk politics and, and not to talk about some of these tougher issues. But I think we're we're hopefully realizing that we need to have these conversations in order to see progress. And that means stepping into the discomfort. So I hope we'll all be brave enough to do that during the holiday season and moving into the future. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about this important dichotomy in some ways, but you know, it, it doesn't have to be. We've got these two levels of scale that we really need to be paying attention to. There's a lot of concern at the federal level about policies that could further racial inequity, whether that's the elimination of the Affordable Care Act or the tax reforms attempts that we're seeing right now that would really privilege the wealthiest on the backs of you know everybody else in the country. So we, we need to pay attention to that. And that's very critical. But at the same time, there's so much that can be done at the local level. And, and that's really where a lot of the impacts of racism are felt. So how do concerned citizens balance the need to follow and fight at the federal level where there's detrimental policy, but also engage at the local level? Well, and I, I think I'll, I in this moment where it's even we're being questioned, the role of citizenry, I think, you know, I'll, I'll expand that definition to be residents and really acknowledge Everyone who's here has a role to play in this and, and belongs in this conversation. But it, it's really interesting. Our observation has been that local jurisdictions aren't a huge fan of the feds telling them what to do. That's always been the case. But particularly when it comes to who belongs and who doesn't belong in their communities. And whether it's urban or rural or it's a red or a blue state or whatever characteristic you want to use to identify local government, what they tend to hold in common is a commitment to the people who live there. And so the, the kind of exclusive rhetoric we've been seeing surging in the public discourse, which has been emboldened in part by proclamations from the administration, has, kind of, has actually ignited some pretty strong interest from local government on how to serve its, all of its residents better. 
and this question of race. We're seeing consistently these outcomes in our communities, and it goes back to race, and we need to understand why that is. And so we've had a real uptick in jurisdictions coming to us saying, what can we do differently as a consequence? Now, as for what we can do, you know, we can encourage local leaders to continue reflecting the kind of inclusive principles that we think undergird our democracy. We can hold our federal representatives accountable for maintaining the values that reflect most accurately our beliefs about the value of community and how we remain vigilant to specific threats that can target the most vulnerable and really in some ways threaten us all. And then we have to also recognize this isn't just incumbent on government. The nonprofit sector plays a vital role in supporting vulnerable communities. We as individuals have a responsibility to learn, evaluate data for ourselves, you know, pull our friends and associates into a broader conversation about, again, the kind of democracy we want to be. So this is really a bit of a step up moment for everyone. And, you know, I, I really, I think our children will tell us how we did ultimately. That's right. And you, you talked about the the trainings you do and the work you do with local leaders. And certainly you've, you've had a, a big impact in doing those trainings with leaders and communities across the nation. I'm wondering for our listeners who may work with local governments or be local governments and, and are very engaged at the community level, where, where do you start on this? Where, when you do your trainings, where do you encourage local governments to start? And what are some specific policies or programs that you've found to be effective? Oh, it's a great question. And if, I think it, it actually calls for a brief, if you don't mind, commercial about exactly how we do business, because it'll explain why we see the things that we see result as a consequence. So Government Alliance on Race and Equity is a membership network. It's led by and you know driven by its membership, which are local jurisdictions who have said, not only do we recognize that race plays a factor in the outcomes in our community, but that we are committed to doing something about that and not just planting a flag that says we care about racial equity, but taking steps, evaluating their, their, their programs and policies, passing resolutions that set the groundwork for action, making investments in a different way, building their capacity and skills, having a trained workforce, any number of uh, approaches that can move them forward. Uh, what we try to provide is a framework for action, some consistency in thinking around why it is we have deep and profound structural racial inequities in our communities. And we do that through training and technical assistance. We sometimes will work in cohorts of jurisdictions who will take months to walk themselves through that process, coming out of the other end with the racial equity action plan, which is really just a strategic plan for how to address the, the factors that contribute to these disparities continuing to persist in our communities. And so what we find in the membership also is that work groups start to take shape that look at specific issues and recognize that there's, there are opportunities to make change anywhere, right? Any system that exists that can hold an unidentified bias that works against a particular community is a system that you can, can turn or shift or improve to have better outcomes to reduce those disparities. So whether it's contracting or procurement or hiring and retention or budgeting, or the investments you make, or community engagement, or law enforcement, all of these are per perfect chances to you know, reduce or eliminate disparities that are most often faced by communities of color. And it's when people ask this question, it's often the most challenging one to answer because every week, every day, we're coming across other examples of libraries working for racial equity. And you might think, libraries for racial equity? What do you mean? And what we find is libraries are having a resurgence as they've refitted themselves to the technology moment that we're in, but recognize they have access and connection in communities, our public spaces that people trust, can create cultural connection 
can actually deepen access for folks who won't otherwise get information. They're doing all sorts of amazing work to bridge the divide between both technology and you know access technology to you know different types of communities to figure out how we can have better solutions. We see places where long-term planning and investment decisions that have profound impact on the shape of communities are being held differently. And you know, I could point to one of the most tenured places in the country, Seattle, where they started with trying to build just racial equity analysis in their budgeting process to understand why do we see the outcomes we have, ultimately built enough culture momentum to think about building their entire comprehensive planning process built on a racial equity analysis, which has shifted how they look at their federal investments. And now have most recently started to look at their long range development plan with the racial equity lens, which had them focus on displacement threats and risks to communities of color as they do development over the next 20, 25 years. Not a conversation that would have been had if they hadn't had the, the intention or finality about how to think about impacts that happen to different racial groups because of disparities in our systems. And so you just go down the line and you can find large and small steps that people are taking within their jurisdictions to make a difference. Great, thanks. And we're going to be featuring a number of great examples like those at the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference. We're going to have a whole track on inclusive prosperity of people and place. And we've really appreciated, Dwayne, your work and the work of your colleagues to be a part of that and to contribute content and present at the conference and also do some side events as well. So Knowing that you're engaged in the conference, I'm wondering what you hope our conference participants will have practitioners from across the United States, hopefully about 1,200 people there. What do you hope they'll take away from these conversations? Well, in a nutshell, I'd say tools, relationships, strategies, and inspiration. Not necessarily in that order. I mean, anyone working in government or the nonprofit sector, philanthropy, even the private you know, sector and industry needs a healthy dose of each of those in order to continue the growing movement to advance racial equity. What I think is so amazing is that uh, New Partners has more than 15 years experience now in bringing diverse communities together to hold these complex and rewarding com- conversations. I'm kind of excited to see racial equity become a more integrated part of the discussion. I will say we both will be doing a half-day session on kind of a, a what we'll call a structural racial inequity 101 that looks at some of these systems and forces that we're talking about on this conversation and what do government entities do to start to address those. I know that the way the workshops are set up, there'll be tracks that people can follow throughout the arc of the the conference to build their their skills uh, within a a thread of emphasis. And that there's just, you know, with several hundred people plus that will be there, real opportunity to build relationship, camaraderie, identify next steps, you know, potential connections that could happen as well. So it's a starting point or a continuing point for some, as the case may be. And I think it's going to be a really rich conversation. Yeah, as we think about next steps, I'm curious to hear from you. What new issues do you see pending on the horizon that will impact racial equity? How can we be forward thinking in how we how we start to plan around these issues so we're not just reacting to challenges as they come? How much time do we have? No. Uh, <laughs> You've got a minute I, I would, on this one. I, I would say there are several, but I, I think we have to start with the enormous displacement crisis that many low-income families of color are facing on communities of all scale across the country. This isn't just an issue anymore of the hot market tech regions. Housing affordability really threatens to stabilize our national economy. That same economy is undergoing a tremendous transformation. And I, I'm afraid that way too many of our communities have little or no say in what that transformation looks like, or frankly, 
that there's even a place that's, you know, that exists for them in that reimagined state. And what does it mean, for example, that we may only need 70 to 80% of our workforce to be a functioning economy in a society where we predominantly value people by the work that they do? And what does it mean when in that moment, wealth is accumulating so significantly in such a hyper-concentrated, small proportion of the population of, you know, the most elite? We're running out of ways to characterize it. I mean, we're just numb to the statistics at this point. These aren't just the questions of tomorrow. These are the questions of today. And we think about um, this is a conference where you'll have a lot of planners there. We're seeing planning as a key emphasis for many of the jurisdictions we work with to think about embedding racial equity because when we don't get this stuff right, we deal with it for a generation. And we've got now a generation of seasoned veteran planners who want to get it all the way right. And we've got young up-and-coming planners who want to be a part of the legacy of changing that conversation in a moment of huge turmoil and change and economic transformation. So it's an exciting time to do the work. Well, we're so pleased that you are doing this work and the Government Alliance of Race on Race and Equity has been uh, a really powerful force um, in this issue and, and really bridging the relationships and the bringing some amazing tools to this space. So thank you so much for your work and thank you for being on the podcast. And before we wrap up, can you let people know where they can find out more about your work? Well, I appreciate the chance to speak with you guys and I would be happy to share a couple of resources to get you started. Race Forward is an organization, it is the, the largest multiracial racial justice organization in the country. And you can find out more about our work, not just with government, but other institutions and partners in media and look at our online magazine, Color Lines, at the address raceforward.org. If you want to go more specifically to the work that we do around work with government and the transformation of systems through the Government Alliance, you can look at racialequityalliance.org and find out information there, as well as ways to become a part of the network. And so hopefully you will do those things, or we will see you at the conference, or you can uh, connect to us directly and continue to do the work we need to do to create the kind of society we want to see here in the United States. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dwayne, and thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.